Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Bread of Heaven. It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 5th, 2018. Am I hungry? If yes, what am I hungry for? If no, what has made me full? These are some of the questions I've been wrestling with as I linger over this week's gospel reading. Here are others. Am I ashamed of my hunger? Does fullness scare me? What kinds of bread do I substitute for Jesus? Every three years, the lectionary invites us or forces us to spend five long weeks in John's Gospel, contemplating Jesus' self-description as the bread of life or the bread which comes down from heaven. It's a daunting business to stay with one metaphor for so long. After all, bread is bread, right? What earthly thing could be more simple and straightforward? As far as the spiritual implications go, we know that Jesus fed the multitudes, we believe he's mysteriously present at the communion table, and we generally agree that Christians should donate to food banks and volunteer in soup kitchens. What else is there to understand? Nothing. Because understanding is not the issue, at least not for me, not anymore. Growing up, I was taught that being a Christian meant understanding and believing the right things. To accept Jesus, to be born again, was to affirm a set of doctrines about who Jesus is and what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. To enter into Orthodox faith was to agree that certain theological abstractions about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the human condition, the Bible, and the Church were true. But this way of doing Christianity, this way of defining faith as an intellectual assent to precisely codified doctrines, has fallen apart for me. Not because I can't assent but because my assenting in and of itself has not fostered anything close to the communion I desire to have with God. If anything, intellectual assent has become a smokescreen and a stumbling block. Comprehension hasn't sated my hunger. But neither has the progressive perspective I've been introduced to more recently, in which Jesus is little more than a wisdom teacher or moral exemplar. Jesus is a wisdom teacher and a moral exemplar, no doubt. He taught with deep insight and authority, and the compassionate life he lived is more than worthy of our emulation. But there's a problem with reducing Jesus to, the, to a clever guru or a generic good guy, a problem Jesus articulates very carefully in the lectionary readings we're lingering over this summer. He doesn't stop at telling the crowds to believe in me, or learn from me, or follow me. He doesn't bother with understand me, either. Jesus says something far more intimate and provocative when he calls himself our bread. He says, eat me. Eat me and never be hungry again. What's at stake for me in this strange invitation is whether or not I will move past religion and into intimacy, past abstraction and into communion, past self-sufficiency and into radical whole life dependence on a God I can taste but never control. We become what we eat, after all. So what am I becoming? In her beautiful meditation on Jesus' bread, theologian and Episcopal priest Lauren Winner writes, in calling himself the bread of life, and not, say, creme caramel or caviar, Jesus is identifying with basic food, with sustenance, with the food that for centuries afterward would figure in the protest efforts of poor and marginalized people. No one holds caviar riots. People riot for bread. So to speak of God as bread is to speak of God's most elemental provision for us. Which brings me back to my original question. Am I hungry? Am I hungry for God? Do I feel in my gut that Jesus is elemental provision? Not appetizer, not dessert, not occasional dietary supplement, but essential everyday food without which I will starve and die. In this week's lectionary reading, Jesus invites the crowds to recognize the hungers beneath their hungers. Of course they're hungry for literal bread, 
They're poor, food is scarce, and they need to feed themselves and their families. There's nothing wrong, substandard or unspiritual about their physical hunger. Remember, Jesus tends to their bodily needs first, without reservation or preconditions. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he asks the crowds to probe the deeper soul hungers that drive them restlessly into his presence, hungers that only the bread of heaven can satisfy. What are those hungers? I can only answer for myself, so here's my list. A hunger for meaning and purpose. A longing for connection, communion, intimacy, and love. A desire to know and to be known deeply and authentically. A hunger for delight, for joy, and for creative engagement with the world in all of its complexity, mystery, and beauty. A hunger for healing, wholeness, and steady courage in the face of fear. That's my list, today and right now. What's yours? Of course, it's one thing to name our hungers, but quite another to trust that Jesus will satisfy them. After all, we're so good at finding substitutes for communion with God. Mine include perpetual busyness, social media, books, movies, the 24-hour news cycle, exercise, dessert, and other people. Do I really trust that Jesus is my bread, my essential sustenance? Very often the answer is no. No, he is not. He's an abstraction, a creed, a set of Sunday rituals I consider pleasant but optional. Why? Because I don't come to Jesus ravenous. I don't recognize my daily, hourly dependence on his generosity. I don't expect to be fed by him. Instead, I hide my hunger, ashamed to want and need too much, so much more than I deserve. In a powerful sermon on God's generosity, Lutheran minister Nadia Boltz-Weber describes a shame that often keeps us from feasting on Jesus. It's hard to accept not just that God welcomes all, but that God welcomes all of me, all of you. Even that within us we wish to hide, the part that cursed at our children this week, or drank alone, or has a problem with lying, or hates our body. The part within us that suffers from depression and can't admit it, or is too fearful to give our money away, or is riddled with shame over our sexuality, or cheats on taxes. All these parts of us we wish Jesus had the good sense to not welcome to his table, are invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. All of who we are is welcome to his table, to see that the gifts of God are free and for all and for all. I write tentatively this week, because I'm such a novice in the presence of this challenging lection on hunger, bread, and Jesus. I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. I long to feast on the bread that comes from heaven. But I recognize too well the shame and hesitation that Boltzweber describes. So where should I, or we, go from here? Once we've named and probed our hungers, once we've moved an inch closer to trusting God with the scariest desires of our hearts, where do we head next? Into contemplation, I think into silence, openness, and deep vulnerability, into a willingness to truly eat Jesus, to take him into ourselves day after day after day, through whatever spiritual practices work best for us. Prayer, meditation, Lectio Divina, song. Jesus wants to be so much more than a creed, a good example, or a teacher in our lives. He wants to be food. He is food. Are we hungry for him? Will we allow his substance to become ours? The bread of heaven is ours for the tasting. May we absorb it, may we share it, may we desire it above all things. May its nourishment permeate us through and through until we, like Jesus, become life-saving bread for the whole world. For books this week, Dan reviews To Fight Against This Age by Rob Riemann. This fiery manifesto by the Dutch cultural philosopher Rob Riemann consists of two essays that he wrote in his home country of the Netherlands. The first one, published in 2010, is called The Eternal Return of Fascism. 
written as a response to the far-right movement in Holland, led by Geert Wilders and the Freedom Party. It became a bestseller there, even as it was ferociously criticized by the political class and intellectual elites for panic-mongering. To Riemann, it was obvious that a fascist movement was on the rise again. And if a fascist movement could emerge in a bastion of liberal democracy like the Netherlands, says Riemann, it could happen anywhere. Although he opens himself to criticisms for using such provocative word with specific historical antecedents in Hitler and Mussolini, Riemann argues that the word populism is far too inadequate to describe what we're witnessing in Europe and the United States. The exploitation of resentments, blindly following charismatic leaders, hatred, xenophobia, declarations of freedom, the false promise of the return to an unattainable past, the high art of lying, and the denial of obvious truths. These fascist trends repudiate the values and ideals of liberal democracy and European humanism, traditions in which the spiritual and moral development of the free individual form the basis of a free and open society. The second chapter is a 2015 essay called The Return of Europa, Her Tears, Deeds, and Dreams. In it, Riemann describes his visits to two different hotels in Europe. One of them symbolizes a nostalgia for a political past that is never to return, and the other, the possibilities for what's left for the West, the theme of a conference he attended at the hotel. The heart of democracy, says Riemann, is education. And by education, he means a return to spiritual and universal values, indeed, the care for and cultivation of the soul in virtues like justice, truth, and beauty. These are found in our poetry, literature, art, music, and our Judeo-Christian heritage that our technologically obsessed age ignores. Will we learn the lessons of Europe's descent into fascism? Riemann quotes the Italian Jew and Holocaust survivor Primo Levi. It took place in the teeth of all forecasts. It happened in Europe. Incredibly, it happened that an entire civilized people, just issued from the fervid cultural flowering of Weimar, followed a buffoon whose figure today inspires laughter. And yet Adolf Hitler was obeyed and his praises were sung right up to the catastrophe. It happened. Therefore, it can happen again. This is the core of what we have to say. From movies this week, Dan reviews Seeing All Red. <clears throat> Some people dismiss her as a shrill feminist crusader and a publicity hound who never saw a camera that she didn't like for her tawdry press conferences. Others claim she's in it for the money. In some ways, she makes for an easy target. But in our country's Me Too moment, I began appreciated watching this Netflix original documentary film about the celebrity attorney, celebrity attorney Gloria Allred, even if it was long on admiration and short on critical inquiry. She is passionate and fearless. Quote, I live in a war zone every day, she says. There is a war on women. It's real. It can be very ugly. Women depend on me to be strong, to be fearless, to assertively protect their rights. Albert's professional life is deeply personal. When she was in her 20s, she was raped at gunpoint. A botched abortion from the resulting pregnancy almost killed her. For many years, she was a single mother. And so, she says, the work is my life. It's not just about what I do, but who I am. It's my identity. There's no narrator in this film, just the camera following Allred while she tells her story. For a lengthy article on her life and work, see Gloria Allred's Crusade, by Gia Tolentino in The New Yorker, October 2nd, 2017. Dad watched his film on Netflix streaming. And lastly for poetry this week, Tell It Slant by Emily Dickinson. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for minds infirm intent. The truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children ease with explanation kind. 
the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Thank you for joining us at Journey with Jesus for August 5th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.